Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Harbin Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, on every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Nancy Pelosi just announced, well, she sent a letter, actually, or an email, I suppose, to all the Democratic members of the House. And in that, she says, I have asked Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler to be prepared to bring to the floor next week a resolution to appoint managers and transmit articles of impeachment to the Senate. I will be consulting with you at our Tuesday House Democratic Caucus meeting on how we proceed further. Now, this is being reported as Nancy Pelosi just caved in and said on Tuesday she's going to hand off the articles to the Senate. That's not what I'm reading here. What I'm reading here is that she's going to have a meeting with her caucus on Tuesday, and they're going to decide how they're going to move forward, but Jerry Nadler is going to be ready to go. We'll ask Congressman Kahn in the next hour, you know, what the details of this are. Here's the situation. Trump assassinates Soleimani, and I'm going to get to the reason why in just a moment. Bolton is up to his eyeballs in this whole Ukraine scandal, the Ukraine bribery scandal that Trump started when he tried to bribe the president of Ukraine to manufacture dirt on Joe Biden. Right in the middle of that was Mike Pompeo. So he has as much of an incentive as, as Trump does to change the subject. Like, let's kill Soleimani. And in fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, Mr. Trump, after the strike, told associates he was under pressure to deal with General Soleimani from GOP senators he views as important supporters in his upcoming impeachment trial in the Senate. So Trump told people around him after Soleimani had been hit that he did it because there were a couple of Republican senators who asked him to and they were going to be judging whether he should be removed from office. And what's so weird, I mean, he assassinates a high-ranking foreign official. This is uh, from Laura Clausen over on Daily Coast. She just summarized it so well. She says, so Donald Trump assassinated a high-ranking foreign official, risking a massive war, in part because it would help him in an impeachment trial that's happening because he tried to use U.S. military aid to extort a foreign country into helping him win re-election. Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, is also pointing out that as a result of this strike, Iraq has now turned against us and told us to get our troops the hell out of the country. Their entire parliament voted for this. Iran has said that they are restarting their nuclear weapons program. And all the operations against ISIS by both Iraq and Iran in Iraq have stopped. And the United States, our efforts against ISIS just stopped cold because of this. Numerous Middle Eastern experts are saying that this was a huge gift to the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda because Iran was deeply involved in that fight against the Islamic State. And by Trump ordering this assassination, he's, I mean, this is going to be recruiting for ISIS forever. So we see this going on. I mean, this is the downside of this. And the majority of Americans have figured this out, by the way. 
But once again, they succeeded in shifting the dialogue in the news media away from the increasing information proving that Trump actually did involve himself in a bribery scandal. The unredacted emails, for example, showing that Bill Barr tried to cover it up, the bribery scandal. This is these emails within the uh, Office of Management and Budget where they were saying to the Pentagon, don't pass that money or give those weapons to Ukraine until Ukraine does what Trump wants with regard to the election. And it's all out there now. And ever since it came out last week, there has just been one thing after another to seize the news cycle so that nobody knows about it, basically. But nonetheless, 55% uh, of Americans say that this strike on Soleimani made America less safe, 55 to 24%. This is a new uh, USA Today Ipsos poll came out yesterday, late yesterday. The percentage of people who think that Trump's actions toward Iran were reckless, 52% versus 34% who like what he did. What people are predicting will come out of this. 69% of Americans say that Iran is now going to attack U.S. interests in the Middle East. 63% say that terrorists will wage attacks on U.S. soil as a result of this. 62% think we're going to end up in a war with Iran. And 52% to 8% say it's more likely that Iran is now going to produce a nuclear weapon. And a plurality, 47% of Americans versus 39% who say no, say that Trump ordered the strike purely for political reasons, which the Wall Street Journal is reporting today. The bad news is that the Wall Street Journal inserted that fact, which should have been the headline in the lead paragraph, in the 29th paragraph in the article. And I don't see it being picked up by the electronic media anywhere, which is pretty shocking. Meanwhile, the House yesterday voted 224 to 194 for this resolution. And again, Congressman Ro Khanna was involved with this. He will be with us in the next hour. We'll be asking him for a deep dive on this. But basically, the House voted to say to Trump, if you want to do anything further with Iran, you have to go through us. Now, keep in mind, the House and Senate passed a similar resolution back in the 80s saying to Reagan that he could not involve himself in Nicaragua, the Contras. And he just did it anyway, right? He had Ollie North do it on the down low, shipping weapons down there and apparently bringing cocaine back up here. Whether Ollie North was involved in the cocaine part or not is still unknown, but there are a number of others who claimed that they were. So that's going on. Kentucky, you know, the Kentucky elected a Democratic governor with a slim margin. So the Republicans in Kentucky just changed. This is what my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. I talk about this in the book, not specifically Kentucky doing this, but several other states have already done this. What the Republicans in Kentucky want to do is prevent students from voting. Now, Kentucky already requires ID. What they did, though, is they said, when you bring your ID to the polls in order to vote, that ID not only has to have a picture on it, but it has to have an expiration date printed on the card. Now, why would they care about that? Because the student IDs at the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville, the two biggest schools in the state, don't have expiration dates on their IDs. And students can use those IDs to vote in Kentucky. So they just, you know, blew away a couple of thousand, maybe tens of thousands of students who now won't be able to vote. There's some amazing stuff happening in the repo market, and the, just in, with regard to the Fed, by the way, the, the, uh, the job uh, numbers came out today. I believe it was 145,000 jobs. It was a little less than they were expecting, but the economy is still looking strong, you know, from external things. But starting in September of last year, this uh, overnight repo market this is from Wall Street on Parade. The reality is that the New York Fed has now pumped a cumulative total of more than $4 trillion into this black lending hole on Wall Street, upwards of $100 billion a day. And they also announced they would be buying $60 billion a month in U.S. Treasury bills. That's what we used to call quantitative easing. In the Axios Markets newsletter today, they point out, and I quote, first of all, the, the New York Fed just added $83 billion. That was yesterday in temporary liquidity. 
They say the stock market's 30% gain last year was in no small part backed by the Fed's decision to cut U.S. interest rates three times and inject more than a trillion dollars of temporary financing into the repo market. It also added more than $400 billion to its balance sheet in the fourth quarter. So what we're looking at, you know, during, uh, during Reagan's time, Reagan, Reagan tripled the national debt. He took us from a, when Reagan came into office, the national debt was less than $1 trillion. It was $800 billion. And when he left, it was about $2.3 trillion. And so, you know, my comment during the Reagan years when people would say, oh, the economy is great, was like, yeah, give me a trillion-dollar credit card. Or in Reagan's case, a two-and-a-half trillion-dollar credit card. I'll show you what it looks like to live large. Well, that's what's going on right now. It's just this is, and yesterday, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarita gave a speech in which he said that we're going to continue pouring money into this marketplace, at least through April, was his phrase. And Axios notes, Clarita's speech was music to the ears of traders and investors who have profitably ridden a liquidity-driven rally that has allowed them to overcome a set of shocks. And, you know, it goes on from there. But the Fed's balance sheet right now is over $4 trillion. That's more than the entire federal budget annually, which is just mind-boggling. MoveOn.org, Need to Impeach, Public Citizen, and Daily Co's have raised 400 grand, and they are using this money for mobile billboards, digital ads, and field organizing in eight states to put pressure on Republican senators to actually have witnesses for the impeachment trial. This is Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Martha McSally of Arizona, Corey Gardner of Colorado, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Susan Collins of Maine, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, and Mitt Romney of Utah. They are pushing these people really, really hard. And I think that that's a great thing. And you want to learn more about it, go to dailycoes.com, moveon.org, needtoimpeach.com, or citizen.org for public citizen. It's a new year. Time is marching on. It doesn't have to march all over your face. You know, with every passing year, we all look older. But now all that's changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It is magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Simply put this powerful serum on problem areas, and within minutes, voila, a new, younger you. And the best part, no surgery, no Botox, no shots, nothing. It's all natural. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN for half off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN with two N's on the end at checkout. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us today. He represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley, more or less. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O Khanna, Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back. Tom, great to be on the show. Thank you for joining us for this hour and, and taking calls from our listeners. I, I appreciate it. Um, I, just a quick question for you. It's being reported that uh, Nancy Pelosi has uh, indicated to her caucus anyway, to, to you guys, that next Tuesday you're going to have a meeting and Jerry Nadler is going to bring apparently the articles of impeachment with him, you know, all prepared to go to the Senate. And they're talking on TV like it's probably going to be delivered to the Senate on Tuesday. What's the process here? And have we yet heard from the Senate about what the rules are going to be? We haven't heard what the rules are going to be. And what Nancy Pelosi and Democrats have been asking is very simple. We just want Justice Roberts to make the rules, not Mitch McConnell or the White House. The reality is that John Bolton now is prepared to testify. We need to hear from people like Bolton, especially urgent given what's going on in Iran, where the president feels that he doesn't need the authorization of Congress. We really need to understand what happened with Ukraine and where he felt he was able to blatantly ignore Congress or bend the rules. Uh, so I expect Tuesday the, the speaker will consult the caucus and either that day or soon after present, uh, transmit the articles to the Senate. Okay. 
Well, we'll see how this all shakes out. Right? Let's pick up some phone calls here. Lara in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Um, uh, Representative Kata, could you uh, talk about your uh, the resolution that was passed yesterday about Iran, war with Iran, and whether it's binding, non-binding, what, uh, does Trump have to even abide by it? And I hear that he doesn't have to sign it because it's non-binding. Uh, just a few more details about that. Thank you. Great question. Oh, it's an excellent question. So the War Powers Resolution yesterday was Alyssa Slotkin's bill, and it's not binding. I mean, it's a concurrent resolution, which is allowed under the War Powers, uh, but the president doesn't have to sign it, and it's never really been adjudicated if uh, the House and the Senate pass something, uh, how binding it is on the president. Uh, that would go to, to the Supreme Court. As a practical matter, uh, Trump is, uh, you know, unlikely to, to abide by it, but it would show that Congress... Uh, disapproves of the action. Now, we need to get still a majority in the Senate. But that is why Senator Sanders and I uh, have our own bill, uh, which Speaker Pelosi has said she would bring to the floor, that would defund any uh, offensive military action in Iran. And, Tom, if you give me a minute, it's it's worth really yeah, go explaining this. I mean, we, we had an amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act about two months ago that would have prevented the Soleimani killing. It said zero funds would be allocated for any attack on Iran or any assassination attempt on Iranian officials. Zero. And uh, that passed the House with 27 Republicans. But it was stripped from the conference committee. And Senator Sanders and I at the time blessed it, frankly, the Congress, for acquiescing to give $738 billion to the Department of Defense without uh, my amendment that would have restricted any offensive action in Iran. Uh, we knew, given that the Pentagon fought tooth and nail, that that was going to mean that they had basically carte blanche to plan offensive attacks. And that's exactly what they ended up doing uh, a month or so later. Now our bill, we're reintroducing it, and we're saying cut off funding for any offensive action in Iran. That's how Vietnam ended. You had Senator Church, who basically had bills defunding any uh, troops going into Cambodia, Laos, or Thailand, defunding troops in Vietnam in 72, and Nixon brings that back in 73. Congress has the power of the purse, and that's really what would be binding to make a commitment to stop funding any offensive war in Iran. Fascinating. Don in Orange, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. My question is, why has the media or anyone spoke of the relationship between Iran and the United States prior to uh, when Moshedek was assassinated? My understanding is that uh, the CIA in 53 overthrew Mossadegh. Uh, I'd have to confirm it, but I don't think yes. I think it was an overthrow. Uh, and th that's knowledge. I mean, that was common knowledge, at least in the uh, Obama administration. Uh, it, it fundamentally ruptured our relationship with Iran. It uh, one of, was the, one of the rationales for uh, the uh, Iranian revolution to uh, depose of the Shah, who was seen as too aligned with America and the West. And uh, that's why Obama said we needed a fundamental reset in the relationship with Iran and actually acknowledged the uh, role the CIA had played in the overthrow of Mossadegh. And he made an extraordinary effort and progress with the peace agreement uh, with Iran, or the nuclear agreement, I should say, with Iran. And unfortunately, this president has undermined all of that. What Obama did may have been the best chance in a generation for peace in the Middle East that this president has completely destroyed. David in Woodland Hills, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Everybody says that the Democratic Party has trouble messaging. And with that in mind, I would like to know if you'd like to use the following slogan. In my opinion, the fundamental failing of the modern conservatives is their denial of the constitutional imperative to promote the general welfare. If they would just do that, they'd be a great Republican Party again, if they would promote the general welfare. With that in mind, how about pro-gen well, promote the general welfare? Appreciate that. 
perspective. I mean, I definitely agree with you that the Republican Party has been focused on maximizing the profits of private interests, of special interests. They haven't been about the general uh, welfare, the general common good. They haven't been about providing everyone, uh, making sure everyone has health care, education, infrastructure. So I uh, like the framing of contrasting the Democratic Party and standing up for the general welfare and common good with the Republicans standing up for special interests. Robin in Belhaven, North Carolina. You're on the Earth, Congressman Connor. I watched the Lee Camp episode yesterday, and the title was Save Julian Assange. And I watched it, and there's two activists, Andrew Smith and, uh, what was her name, uh, Christine Dupp. There's an, a website, Action, and the number for Assange.com. So apparently the U.S. is advising the U.K. courts on how to keep Julian Assange in 23-and-a-half-hour cell all day. What is that called? Solitary confinement? Mm -hmm. Doctors are attesting that he's not going to survive much longer. There's no charges literally standing that are keeping him in that jail, that prison, Belmarsh prison. And all of this is in order to get him extradited to the U.S. That extradite... that hearing is scheduled for February 24th. Doctors don't even believe he'll survive until then. He's a journalist and a publisher. Are we, are you, do you know of anybody in the government that's helping trying to get him released from the U.K. prisons? Robin, I didn't know about that. I'm happy to look into that to, to see uh, if there is actually humane, inhumane treatment, which it sounds like from what you're describing. I did think that the prosecution on him was overbroad. And we are working on legislation to clarify that if you are a journalist, if you're a publisher, and the only thing you're doing is getting uh, information from a source, you're not actively trying to hack into a system, that you shouldn't be uh, able to be prosecuted for exercising your First Amendment rights of getting information that a source may have passed on to you. Uh, And we're working with the ACLU, some of the other civil liberty groups, uh, to to articulate that standard, uh, because I view that the prosecution, the way at least the complaint has been written, really violates publishers and journalists' First Amendment rights. Congressman Rokana taking your calls for the hour here on the Tom Harvard program. It's 19 minutes past the hour. We'll be back in just a moment for more of your calls for him. His website, Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Rokana. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and represents the 17th District of California, the Silicon Valley area, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Welcome back. Uh, Deborah, Denver, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Rokana. Hi, Tom. Hi, Rokana. How are you? Hi, Deborah. I'm out here in Colorado. Uh, just a quick question. Why doesn't the Senate Democrats filibuster the impeachment rules? It requires a two-thirds vote for cloture and uh, not three-fifths. After all, uh, this is important, and the Republicans just want to blow it off. Deborah, that's a, a very good point. I mean, I, do, I don't know the details of the rules in, in the Senate uh, and how much leverage Senator Schumer has, but uh, I do think he should exercise as much possible leverage to get at least a concession of having John Bolton testify. And if that means filibustering to make that point, and if he can, uh, I would support that. David in Lake Isabella, California. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, gentlemen. I think it's time for the Democrats to start pounding the table. You're fighting for our democracy, and you're our warriors, man. You know, we count on you guys to put out the passion for us, and I hope you guys will get a little passionate fighting for our democracy. So my question is about Mitch McConnell and how it is that uh, the rules uh, can be changed to get the power out of this guy's hands. I mean, he, he seems to have more power than our president. Uh, he's holding up three years of bills. From uh, from the Congress, uh, he held up the Merrick Garland thing. You know, we elect him. How do we get the power out of his hands? That's my question. Well, David, I think the biggest thing we could do is get rid of the filibuster. Uh, the reality of what gives McConnell so much power, why he's been able to block all the bills that the House has passed on as a sensible gun violence legislation on uh, issues of climate change and issues of campaign finance reform. We haven't even gotten a vote in the Senate. 
and that's because it requires 60 senators to have cloture, and McConnell always has at least 40 senators with him, and so it can refuse to bring up things for a vote in the Senate. If you move that to a 50-vote uh, threshold to be able to close the debate and get, a, get things onto the floor, uh, then I think it would really lessen the power of the majority leader. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, good day, Tom and Congressman Khanna. Thanks for this vital forum. Congressman Khanna, first off, bravo to Speaker Pelosi for standing her ground on the articles of impeachment. Not only, as you've said, have new witnesses and email evidence emerged, but I believe the administration will continue to implode as it desperately seeks to keep the truth from getting out. So my question for you, Congressman, A, if McConnell doesn't commit to having witnesses, will you have Bolton testify to the House? And B, emoluments. Would it not be a slam dunk article of impeachment to quickly uh, have draw Trump that Trump is enriching himself by having our tax dollars go directly to his properties every time he plays and stays at his golf courses. Jeff, I uh, agree with you that uh, Bolton needs to testify in the House, and it would be very hard for him to argue now that uh, he uh, has some kind of privilege to avoid House testimony, but he doesn't have that privilege to testify in the Senate. So I, I do think the House should subpoena him if the Senate won't. Uh, and I also agree with you on the emoluments clause. I supported including that article originally. <clears throat> I think Pelosi wanted to get articles that would have the broad support of our caucus, including frontliners. Uh, and that's why we went with the two that we did. Uh, but, uh, th you know, I agree with you that the emoluments clause uh, has been violated by this president and that that's an impeachable offense. My, my theory, I'd love to get a reality check from you on this, Congressman. My theory on why uh, Bolton suddenly came out and said that he was willing to testify is that, you know, he's looking at a million or two million dollar advance from a publisher if he can get his book published. But his book is about his time in the White House, which means that the White House is going to have to sign off on everything he's written, which is extremely unlikely. But if he can get that information into the congressional record, it goes into the public domain, and then the publisher can publish the book without it having to be vetted by the White House. Does that make any sense to you? I never thought of it. I mean, it's plausible. I, I did think also the timing was odd. You know, Bolton has been a cheerleader for the war in Iran, for a strike in Iran, and as I understand it, that he came out a few days after the Soleimani strike, uh, saying that he was prepared to testify. So I don't know if there was any correlation there. But who knows what his motives are. I do think he should testify, though I'm not getting my hopes up or holding my breath that he's somehow going to uh, implicate the president. I mean, that would not be consistent with how he's acted his entire public service career. There you go. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. I, I believe you're Congressman. Thank you for your book, Tom. The ADHD really helps a lot. I enjoy reading it. Congressman, Thank you, Joe. we had a lot, nice little crowd out here last night with the no war in Iran here at home. I'm really grateful that you're a rep my representative. In, what is this, 50, the, the bill that you just forwarded, which is 5548, I think is the number, 43. Yes. It's really a great idea, but you brought the church amendment up, and I did some research. And, you know, I'm thinking about what McGovern did in the 70s, which was to pull us out. He tried to get us out of Vietnam. And then, of course, he wasn't successful. And later, of course, in 73, when he withheld the funds, we eventually got out. But today, I'd like for us to, as Democrats, progressive Democrats, to recognize that we would like to send all of the troops home. And our message is not just in Iraq and Iran and the Middle East and Israel, but we are a party of... Joe, we've got 30 seconds. Can you, can you wrap up your question so Congressman Connick can answer it? Y yes, Congressman. Can you put forward a bill that says we want to end the hostilities? There you go. Well, Joe, we, we have been talking about responsible withdrawal of troops. I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for over 18 years and escalating there. We need to bring our troops back from Afghanistan. We need to responsibly withdraw from Iraq. I mean, they're sitting there as targets, uh, partly because uh, they're there. If they were back home uh, and we have to do it responsibly, they wouldn't be targets. So I agree with you that Democrats should be for responsible withdrawal. 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 
As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Keith in Newcastle, Wyoming. You are on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Tom, I got one question first before I ask the uh, question for the congressman. Are you going to make more of your books uh, audiobooks? My most recent books, the, the Hidden History of the War on Voting, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, and The Betrayal of America, and The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment are all available as audiobooks, Keith. Okay. And, and probably right, half of my other books are. Okay, good. Thank you. Here's a very simple question that I haven't heard anybody even talk about in all the news exchanges over the last few weeks, and that is, what is the name of the person, the contractor that was killed, and what relationship did he have possibly to the uh, Trump administration? It almost seems like uh, the reason why Trump uh, unleashed all his firepower, uh, the linchpin was possibly this contractor getting, getting murdered. I don't know the name of the uh, American who lost his life. I don't think that he was connected in any way to to the administration. I mean, I think it was a, an American contractor who, who lost his life, uh, and that was what triggered the, the, the response. But the question is, uh, what what is the response that's going to actually uh, end the cycle of violence, not escalate the cycle of violence? Jeff in Sicklerville, New Jersey, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh, thanks, Tom. I, I listen every day. Um, Congressman, I'm also a council rocker, uh, originally from Bucks uh, County, and you graduated with my brother, Jason. Um, oh, great. So, yeah, no, I graduated there in 94. Great, great. 94. Uh, yeah, you, you graduated with my, my youngest brother, Jason Zitter. Um, I listen, I want to talk, talk to you about H.R. 2474. I understand it's a pro-labor bill, and I understand that it's a, you know, it helps to, uh, with unfair labor practice and whatnot, not, but some of the things that concern me about it is it reclassifies, adversely classifies um, Freelancer, pre- freelance professionals like myself. Um, California passed the, the law, the um, pro labor law that was to um, go, set out against Uber, and Jersey has just tempor- is temporarily stalled um, in in our uh, local state government. Um, I'm asking you to dig deeper into this bill, see how it affects writers, artists, editors, and people with a small roster of clients like myself. If you can talk a little bit about it, and if you can also look into it and, and dissect it and see how it affects us, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sure, I, I appreciate the question. I, I uh, believe that employees of uh, companies like Uber and Lyft should be treated as employees, and they shouldn't be able to profit of uh, drivers not having benefits or not having overtime laws or not getting vacation uh, while they're basically uh, serving as an employee. But I agree with you that there are uh, writers or publishers or artists that uh, don't fall into that employee relationship with, with large corporations, and these bills have to be carefully constructed so that they don't uh, sweep up uh, people who are actually artists or publishers and hurt them. Steve in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi. Well, thank you for taking my call. This question kind of refers a little bit back to what you were talking about earlier when you were talking about um, the jobs leaving uh, the country because we had American companies that would just lay people off. I just wanted to uh, ask the congressman if he could uh, address how vulture capitalism has really fed into that because they not only take your jobs but the equity of your home because the market value goes down because everybody's not working. Then they steal your pensions. And this has been happening for a long time, and it's killing the middle class. So I just want to know uh, when that's going to be addressed. Well, Chris, I share your concerns. Original free enterprise system, the idea was that you make something or you build something or you invent something, and then you're rewarded for your hard work, for your invention, for your what you've made by people uh, paying for it. And there is no one or very few people who have an objection to 
a proper functioning uh, free market in that way. But what has happened is people have abused that. They're, they're, the biggest abuse has been uh, people who have bought companies, hollowed them out, uh, taken away all the investment in research and development, taken all of the, a lot of times, the quality controls, the uh, actual commitment to a culture of producing good products. They show, because of the reduced cost, uh, temporary profits. And then uh, the people who benefit from those profits are uh, the very few people who own equity. Uh, but it's short-term. It doesn't lead to long-term investment. And I think that's what you mean by this vulture capitalism. There are two types of uh, capitalistic activity. There's that that is productive, and then there are people who are simply rent-seeking or simply trying to rearrange the deck to give themselves a larger gain. And what we haven't done well these last 30, 40 years is have rules to prevent the manipulation uh, of uh, economic activity to benefit the few, uh, and, and that's why we need some of these progressive rules. Steve in Lawrenceville, Georgia, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, my question for the congressman is just, I want to know to what extent do Democrats hold a shared responsibility for this current situation with Iran? Because it doesn't seem like they've made it a priority from stopping this before it actually happened, when he had the power to try to rescind the AUMF or to, to, to stop the Patriot Act. And these are things that, you know, should are anti-democratic, in my opinion. And we see from the Republican side, that they're willing to do anything and fight for and shut down the government over little things. But it seems like the Democrats roll over and just kind of become reactionary to everything bad that's happening that everyone else just seems to know that it's coming. Well, Steve, I mean, I do think the primary blame is the White House and the administration that took this reckless action in defiance of Congress. But uh, as I pointed out earlier in the show, uh, Senator Sanders and I had an amendment to two months ago that would have defunded exactly what took place. And we got it passed through the House. Uh, but we didn't fight hard enough as a Congress for keeping that in the Defense Authorization Act. And Congress ended up giving $738 billion uh, to the Pentagon without the amendment that had passed the House. Senator Sanders and I opposed it. We said, don't uh, give the money on the National Defense Authorization Act, hold out. Uh, but there was too much of a concern that that would look obstructionist. So I agree with you that Congress needs to be tougher in our negotiation posture. Jim in Atwater, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Since we all know how the uh, Senate trial is probably going to turn out, can you immediately start another impeachment inquiry? You can go with ENA emoluments and assassination and call Mulvaney and Duffy and Pompeo and Trump. Congress has sole power in impeachment, not the courts, not anyone. You must fight. Someone must fight. Well, the fight is now, Jim. I mean, we've got to make the case in the Senate to convict. As a practical matter, I mean, there are some of us who would have had much broader articles of impeachment, but as a practical matter, uh, I don't think there will be the will there uh, to add new articles of impeachment if he is not convicted in the Senate. And so we really need to make the most of this next few weeks to tell the American public what he did wrong and why he should be removed. Andrea in Rochester, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you for doing such a great job for the people of California and, and for the 17th District and for, for, the, for everyone here in the United States. Um, I'm an ex-military spouse, and I'm very proud of our Madam Speaker Nancy Pelosi for the remarks that she made yesterday for refusing to let the articles of impeachment go to the Senate. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm very angry. How can Mitch McConnell think? that he can deny every man, woman, and child in this country due process by refusing to hear negative information about the president that, they, that may convict him. How can he do this? How can people let him do this? How, is there a precedent that he thinks that he can, he can cheat people out of, out, of, out of the law, out of justice? Does he think that? I'm speaking as uh, an ex-military spouse who's seen sham trials like you can't imagine at the private level. Nobody pays attention to me because I'm just a little person 
and, and nobody cares about my case, but I see it trickling up and infecting our whole government of thinking they can do sham trials and not hold people accountable for their behavior. How does Mitch McConnell think he can deny every American man, woman, and child due process by letting President Trump off? Andrea, I share your anger and frustration, as do probably every single one of my Democratic colleagues. I mean, we're not asking McConnell even to, to convict the president. We're not asking him to allow for some lengthy statements from House members. We're simply saying let people who have knowledge of what happened uh, testify. And he is not allowing a fair trial. Uh, and it is a travesty that he's doing that. Richard in Bellevue, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Piggybacking on Andrea's comment, can the Democrats, either Nancy Pelosi or the case managers or the Senate, petition John Roberts to recuse Mitch McConnell from the impeachment case for conflicts of interest, not only for his prejudice, but his wife is working in that cabinet? That's a great point. Um, And uh, he does have a conflict of interest, and I think we should make that case. I think we should also, with the senators, uh, petition Justice Roberts to make evidentiary rulings of who should be allowed to testify. My fear is temperamentally Justice Roberts uh, doesn't like to get involved in political disputes and may punt. Uh, But the Constitution very clearly says that it's not Chief Justice, it's not uh, Donald Trump, the White House, it's not McConnell, it's not Pelosi who should set the rules. It's the Chief Justice. And everything McConnell is doing is a travesty of of the Constitution. James in Spokane, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, guys, I'd like to change the subject a little bit. If this guy can be impeached again, the charge should be the one that should have been brought against him initially as the worst and most egregious thing for an American to do. What's happening at that border? This is Nazi stuff. This is what we fought World War II against. You know, that's the one... That's the one the Republicans could not defend. If you brought the facts to life, no one can defend it. Thank you. Putting children in cages. Pardon me. Yeah, no, I appreciate you reminding us of that. That is, uh, I agree with you. That's probably the biggest moral stain on this administration. I mean, children uh, locked up in cages, children forcibly separated from their parents, uh, some of them still not reunited. Uh, I never thought... I would live uh, as an American to see uh, our government do that, and it's an embarrassment uh, what took place. Uh, and we still need to get answers. We still need to do more to try to, 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 to reunite some of these families uh, and to, to make uh, whole uh, people who have suffered unimaginable loss. Doogie in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. One of my biggest worries is that we're having an implementation across a bunch of states with unverifiable electronic voting machines, and uh, to what I understand, also in California. Is there any possible way to get a mandate on a national? Because I know that the states control voting. Is there any way to get a national, a federal mandate that we actually have paper trails and verifiable, reliable machines? Yes, and that's exactly what H.R. 1 did, which we passed through the House of Representatives, called for paper ballots, verifiable, uh, and it's one of the 200-plus bills that are stuck because McConnell refuses to allow a vote for it in the Senate. Tom in Rochester, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman, uh, excuse me, Congressman Rokana. Unlike the other side, I'm a peacenik. I have two questions. Um, who says um, Bolton couldn't lie if he came and testified? And what about the Social Security disability um, trying to do away with it or make it harder? Thank you. Tom, I appreciate the questions. Uh, we need to expand the Social Security disability income, not do away with it. There, are, it, It's not nearly enough for people who are uh, unable to work to survive. Uh, I, I think it amounts to less than $14,000 a year. Uh, it doesn't allow people to save money. I think after $2,000, uh, you can't have aggregate more savings. So we really dramatically need to expand uh, SSDI. Uh, in, in terms of... Uh, 
the Tom Bol- John Bolton, you know, I, that's what I said. I mean, I wouldn't trust uh, that he's going to have some silver bullet or he's going to uh, turn on the president or tell, tell, tell us uh, what really happened. I mean, it's better that he testify than not. Uh, but uh, I agree with you that we can't uh, uh, think that that's going to be the silver bullet. Tim in Fountain Hills, Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Uh, good morning. Congressman, I'd like to point out that the public, the, the 7P party, the Putin's parasitic, propagandist, plutocratic, public and political party, is in control and has been for two generations now. And I think it's time that we, the people, manage to stand up and be reclaimed by the Democratic Party. And that we, the people, Tim, what's your question for really, the congressman? Should really own uh, that title, and I was wondering if you could push that through to the Democratic Party, or whether there are too many plutocrats that own the Democratic Party to prevent that from happening. Okay. Well, Tim, I. I think uh, representing the people, taking back power for the people, is at the heart of the Democratic agenda. The, the uh, Democratic uh, message for 2018 was for the people, and now you have uh, Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, and others talking about getting away from a politics of special interests uh, and having uh, programs where everyone gets health care, everyone gets child care, everyone gets education, uh, and that we increase wages for people who are working families. And that is really the type of economic agenda uh, that would uh, restore uh, the balance uh, uh, of opportunity to the working class and middle class instead of just concentrating it uh, to the very rich. Jeanette in Spirit Lake, Idaho, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Thank you so much. I was a state delegate for Bernie in 2016, uh, and at that time our state had uh, caucus, uh, which Bernie won by almost 80 percent. And like so many states, we've converted to a primary. In 2016, exit polling indicated that some discrepancies uh, there were in some of the primaries. And in fact, there were two research papers out of Stanford on this. Uh, I believe they even halted exit polling right before the California primary. So my question is, who controls exit polling? And is there any way the campaign can be sure it will be done, be done accurately, so that you know the numbers are not adjusted to fit the results post-election? Does the campaign have any control? Is it the DNC, through the media, or outside companies? Jeanette, I appreciate the question. I'm not sure uh, whether uh, the campaign uh, has any control. I don't think campaigns spend money or resources on uh, exit polling. They're traditionally done by news organizations. Uh, But I do think it's important to have that kind of exit polling uh, so that uh, it's one check on making sure that the the system is accurate and every vote is being counted. And if there are large discrepancies, obviously that sends red flags. So uh, I will certainly look into it. Mike in Medina, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman uh, Congressman Connor. Yes, hello, Congressman. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, concerning the uh, defense authorization bill that was passed a few weeks ago. Uh, as I understand it, you had some restrictions in there. Uh, you had proposed some, and I believe I believe it was Tulsi Gabbard uh, putting restrictions on the ability of uh, Trump to launch an attack on Iran. Yet those were pulled out. I wonder if you could explain the process or what happened on that, because. I'll be honest, there's some pretty angry progressives about the way we rolled over on that bill. Pretty angry progressives. Well, Mike, I appreciate it. I had an amendment that would have prohibited the Pentagon from spending a single dollar uh, on an offensive war with Iran or an offensive strike uh, on Iran. In that amendment, we worked very hard. We got Matt Gates to co-sponsor it, a conservative Republican, and we got 27 Republicans to vote for it. It passed overwhelmingly in the House of Representatives, my amendment to the National Defense Authorization. Uh, and then the Pentagon fought tooth and nail. This was their highest priority, to remove my amendment from the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, I and several progressives uh, said to uh, our leadership and to uh, leaderships on both sides, do not 
cave on giving the Pentagon the funding they want without the restriction on an offensive war in Iran. Uh, we went to, the, to, to a number of people. Ultimately, we, we, we lost that battle. Uh, I gave a speech on the House floor blasting uh, our acquiescence to giving $738 billion to the Pentagon without these amendments. Uh, Senator Sanders and I, I think, said it was astonishing moral cowardice to uh, hand over to the Pentagon this blank check without these restrictions. Now, the reason to relitigate the past is so we don't make the mistake in the future. Amen. Congressman Khanna, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Really enjoyed it. Great talking with you. It's always uh, fascinating and illuminating and all that stuff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, this is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas. No push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. 
And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example, the main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up, and other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. Tom Harbin here with you. By the way, Mike Pompeo had a press conference where he said, yeah, this attack was imminent. I mean, the definition of imminent is about to happen. And then they said, well, where? And he said, I don't know. When? Uh, I don't know. Right. And 176 people are dead right now because of this attack that Trump did in order to get himself reelected, in order to stop the impeachment process and get himself reelected. This is amazing. Rich in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? I was telling Joyce, your screener program director, uh, that, you know, it's all baked into the cake. If Nancy Pelosi says, Tom, all roads lead to Trump. You know, I think what she said was all roads lead to Putin, wasn't it? Lead to Putin. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. You know, there's a Russian missile. You've said before, Russia has shot passenger airliners out of the sky. Uh, Well, what I pointed out was that we, the last time an Iranian uh, passenger airliner taking off from Iran was shot out of the sky, it was shot out of the sky by us. But anyhow, back to you, Rich. Well, I was talking like the the Malaysian jet and, you know, there's, this is all programmed basically where Putin is running this country via Trump. He delayed that news conference, you know, because he had to check with Putin. It's all cooked into the cake. This is an oligarchy. And I think what we need is, like you said, we need to pack the courts. We need to put the telecommunications law back in place. We need to put the Sherman Trust back in place, the the truth doctrine. Because I don't see, Tom, anyway, the elections are going to get rigged. Mitch McConnell said, and I forget what news thing I heard it on, Tom, that he said it would be mutually assured destruction if we had witnesses testify. Hmm. It's going to be just another sham, and like you were saying in the last segment, he's done more damage. He's a hero to the Republicans, you know? I don't think that it is Vladimir Putin controlling the United States via Trump as much as what Trump represents is an oligarchic system of essentially organized crime, very, very wealthy organized criminals running a country. And so you see a system somewhat like that, a semi-oligarchic system emerging in a whole bunch of different countries, in in the Philippines with Duterte, in Brazil with Bolsonaro, in Russia with Putin, Poland with Duda, in Hungary with Orban. I I wrote an article about this, in fact, that just went up on alternate.org about uh, Viktor Orban and and how he is the model for Donald Trump. So I don't think it's so much just one guy, Putin, who's running Trump. I think what's happening is what you're seeing is the integration of this international group of oligarchs, of strongman oligarchs, and Modi in India as well. Trump basically doing what all of these guys want because it's really what he wants. It's, uh, it's the destruction of democracy as envisioned by the founders as a, as a democratic republic, as an egalitarian country. And everywhere that they can establish an oligarchy, they're trying to
trying to do that. They're making the world safe for oligarchs. That's my opinion. And, and you know, I think that Mr. Putin is part of that. But I, I'm not convinced that he is like the grand puppet master behind all this thing. I don't think there has to be. I think these guys are all operating on basically class interest. Rich, thanks for the call. Tom in Fairfax, California. Hey, Tom, what's up? Well, he sent the message by shooting down the airplane. The fact that the Iranians continue to insist that they didn't shoot it down has got a lot of people scratching their heads because Iran yeah. could very easily say, yes, we shot it down and it was a huge mistake and, and it wouldn't have happened if Donald Trump hadn't started this whole thing. And it's collateral damage from Trump's war. I mean, they, they could blame the entire thing on Trump, but instead they're saying, no, no, it wasn't us, which makes me think maybe it wasn't them. But if it wasn't them, I mean, this is like 10 miles southwest of Tehran. How do you run surface to air missiles in that, in that area without the knowledge of the Iranian government? I really think that another shoe is going to fall here. How in the world could they make a mistake when a, a, an airplane is going up, it's not at cruising altitude nor speed, and it, is, it has come up from the airport? I mean, to call that a mistake, that they couldn't identify that, is ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, you know, if it's just some guy who's running a battalion or whatever the, the unit would be called, you know, the size of the unit would be called that, that is uh, running surface-air missiles, it might just be some guy, some Yahoo, who thought, hey, this is a good idea. We don't know yet, Tom, and it's another reason why we need to have congressional hearings. Congress needs to investigate this. Tom, thanks a lot for the call. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it, and tell your friends about progressive media. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 